Good morning. Thank you for coming. We welcome the online community that joins us for this worship. Uh, just a couple of quick things. Um, for those of you following along in the Choices series with your families, we have put together a question and answer time and some explanations for some of the Choices messages. And you can take this home and ask your kids questions. It's a great opportunity for parents to intersect with their kids on the issues of the message on the weekends. Also, there's a family event this afternoon from se- uh, 5 to 7 at the Ballantine campus. For those of you who don't know, we're One church, three campuses at the Ballantine Y, also in Fort Mill. That huge field outside the Ballantine Y will be Forest Hill accessible. It'll be a family event. Please bring your kids. It's a fun time between 5 and 7 this afternoon. Hope you can attend that. Today is the third message in the Choices series. Uh, It's having to do with being able to choose not to continue family stuff that's been passed on to us. The truth is, folks, every single one of us has stuff that's been passed on to us from our families. There is no such thing as a perfectly functional family. We're all dysfunctional because our parents and our grandparents and our ancestors all were dysfunctional, sinful, and they passed that stuff on down to us. None of us was able to choose our parents, right? Whether adopted or biological, we did not get to choose our parents. But we can choose how we respond to the stuff that's been passed on to us. That's the message today. We can reverse the curse. We can choose to respond in a godly right way to that which has been passed on to us. Today's text is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. Out of reverence for the reading of the scripture, if you're able, would you now please stand? The early church, whenever the scripture was read, immediately people would stand out of reverence for its reading. And I believe unabashedly that this is the word of God. Moses said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, now pause there for a second with me. This is obviously the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments, no other gods before me, no idols. And what Moses is emphasizing here from God is to worship the Creator, not the creation. All sin is worshiping the creation rather than the Creator. And the adjuration here from God is to make sure we place the creator first. But if we don't, here's what's going to happen. The result of worshiping creation rather than the creator, idolatry in its rank sense. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Those who hate God who worship creation rather than the creator. They pass on to the third and fourth generation sins and iniquity. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The 
God's jealous of us. He, he only wants us to worship him and him alone. And when we start worshiping creation rather than the creator, he becomes jealous. But there's something else that occurs. The sins and iniquities of those who hate God and love creation more than the creator are passed down to the third and fourth generations. Immoral behavior and godlessness is passed on to the third and fourth generations. If you don't believe that, look at what's around us today. Every scientific evidence shows that if parents are alcoholics and drink a lot in front of the children, they will drink. Every piece of evidence shows that abusers come from homes where they were abused. Every evidence shows that fearful hearts within people come from parents who are mostly fearful. We pass it on to our kids, whether we like it or not. But that's because God created us to be interdependent, to be connected to one another. It's not good for us to live alone, God said, in original intent in Genesis 1 and 2. So therefore, he created us to live in families and in community, to be connected with one another. But when the fall occurred in Genesis 3, and we all inherited that basic selfishness from Adam, we have hurt ourselves, plus we have hurt our families. Well, how do we respond to this? We, first of all, blame other people. Or secondly, we give excuses for why we're the way we are. Or we look at ourselves as victims, that our families have passed this down to us and we're mere victims. But today we can make the choice no longer to be victims. We don't have to be victims of what's been passed down to us from our parents, our grandparents, and our great-grandparents. Now, let's talk about this sin being passed on to four generations. What does that mean? Is it a genetic transmission of sin? I don't think so. Most immorality, most bad behavior is observed and copied rather than genetically conceived. So what it's talking about here is the ability for a generation of great-grandparents down to their great-grandchildren influencing them. Let me give you an illustration. In my family, my wife's parents, Ann Keith and Harper, are still living. So they, through their love, conceived and birthed Marilyn. Marilyn and I met. In our love, we conceived and birthed three children. There's Bethany, who's married to Ryan. They have two grandchildren for me, Anna Grace and Caleb, Anna Grace is a little over two. Caleb is a couple of few months old. They are the most beautiful grandchildren ever. Don't you try arguing with me, okay? And I've teased with you before. If I'd known grandparenting was so much fun, I'd have skipped parenting altogether, okay? So now, Bethany and Ryan have Caleb and Anna Grace. So in four generations, we have all the living great-grandparents to grandparents to parents to the children themselves. And in Moses' day, all of these four generations often would live together, and if Caleb and Anna Grace were old enough to be influenced, they could very well be influenced by Harper and Ann Keith, their great-grandparents. So it's saying here that the modeling of bad behavior can be passed on to four generations because they're all living and watching one another live. But folks, it doesn't have to be that way. Today's message is a call for all of us to make a choice, to reverse the curse. The word curse is what's happened since Genesis 3 onward, that all of us have inherited a sin nature from Adam 
that have caused us to dysfunctionalize our lives and worship the creation more than the creator. But we don't have to live there anymore. Because of what Jesus has come and done for us on the cross and the resurrection, we don't have to live there anymore. We can reverse the curse. Say it with me. We can reverse the curse. One more time. We can reverse the curse. But it's a choice. You have to make that decision. No longer to be a victim, but to be a victor. Now, all of us have had bad stuff passed down to us. No one is immune. In fact, bad stuff happens to all of us. No one's immune. Jesus said in the book of Matthew that the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. All people, whether they love God or don't love God, have bad stuff happens to them. But the question is, how will we respond to the bad stuff when it happens? That's the choice we can make. One of my favorite uh, authors of a particular kind of psychotherapy is named Viktor Frankl. Some of you may know I have a graduate degree in counseling, and I, I love to study the different teachers of psychotherapy. I was particularly drawn to Viktor Frankl. He formed something called logotherapy, which is basically the therapy that you can't keep bad stuff from happening to you, but you can choose how you'll respond to that bad stuff when it happens. It's a simple truth, but it's profound. And some of you are saying, well, who's Viktor Frankl? I mean, what right does he have to teach me this? He's a Nazi concentration camp survivor. It was in the Holocaust that he formed logotherapy. It was while he was ministering to people in the concentration camp that he formed this opinion. And here's what he finally said. They can steal the gold out of my teeth. They can take away my children and kill them. They can separate me and my wife and never let us see each other again. But what they can't take away from me is my ability to choose how I'll respond when these bad things happen. Bad things happen to all of us, folks, but we can choose to respond differently. And I want to call you today to stare your victimhood in the face and no longer remain there. Reminds me of the story of the king in medieval times who had a beautiful daughter, and he wanted to offer her hand to someone in his kingdom. So here was the scheme he came up with. He alerted all the eligible bachelors in the kingdom that one day they could appear at the end of his swimming pool. And at an appointed time, they could challenge each other, swim across the swimming pool, and the person who got there first on the other side would get the hand of his beautiful, lovely daughter. So the day arrived, and all the eligible bachelors arrived at the one side of the swimming pool, and the king and his beautiful, lovely daughter were on the other side of the pool. And the king said, here's the deal, guys. When I say so, you'll get in the water and swim across, and whoever gets here first gets my daughter. But let me show you one quick thing you need to know. And he lifted up a cage, and out in the water swam a huge 15-foot alligator. Then suddenly there's a splash in the water, and there's one who swims furiously across, evades the alligator, gets to the other side, breathlessly comes out of the water, and the king says, My, what a courageous soul you are. He said, I've just got to know, what was it that made you get in the water? Was it because of the loveliness of my daughter or the riches that would most assuredly be yours in my kingdom? And the guy said, no, it was neither of those. Somebody pushed me. <laughs> the truth is every single one of us have been pushed in the water. 
somebody from our past has done something to us, oftentimes a parent or a significant other. And here's the deal, folks, whether you're a third across your swimming pool in life or you're halfway across your swimming pool in life and midlife or you're in your older years, the truth is you need to stare that alligator in the face and with his jaws open wide and his bad breath breathing upon you, you need to say to him, no more. No more will you define me. I'm getting to the other side of that pool where there's new life. That's why Jesus came, to give us new life, to give us new purpose. Deuteronomy 24, 16 says something powerful. It says, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for what, folks? His own sin. So the same Moses who wrote earlier through God that the sins of the father are passed on to the third and fourth generation doesn't give us an out. He's the same Moses who said fathers appear before God and are responsible for their own sins. Children appear before God and they're responsible for their own sins. We can't keep bad things from happening to us, but we can choose how we'll respond to them. Galatians 3, 13 and 14 shows how personally we need to make choices about Jesus that can break the curse, reverse the curse. Here's what these words say. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through the faith. Now, in Jesus' day, it was an absolute curse for a Jew to be killed on a tree. It was forbidden in every possible way under the Old Testament law. But Jesus, this Jew, God in human flesh, dies on a tree, dies on a cross to forgive us all of our sins so that in Christ Jesus, those of us who believe in him through faith receive the promise given to Abraham that God would bless him, not according to his works, but according to faith, and the Holy Spirit would indwell his heart in a new identity with God in Christ. So as Gentiles, people who believe in Jesus, we now have the curse of the law, the curse of sin broken, and we now have a new identity with God in Christ forever, the promised Holy Spirit indwelling our hearts. Now, that's what Peter knew when he preached at Pentecost. But let me make one other statement real quickly. In Colossians 2.15 We see Paul writing, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I don't have for a moment's doubt that the evil one, Satan and his demonic hordes, used some of your parents and your significant others to hurt you so that you can feel hurt for the rest of your life and feel like you're a victim so your life is useless. But on the cross, Jesus disarmed all the powers and principalities of hell and made them no longer powerful in our lives whatsoever. And again, this is what Peter wanted to give evidence to in his speech at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the people listening to him preach. The question they asked after they heard him preach was this one, what must we do to be saved? Peter's preaching was so powerful and convicting of their hearts that they cried out, what must we do to be saved? And I want all of you to ask that same question today. What must I do to be saved? What is the source of that question? Here it is. 
Every single one of us is going to appear before God one day. And there are two avenues to him. It's either through our self-righteousness or through Christ's righteousness. Those are the two world's religions. There are no other world's religions. Self-righteousness is I basically by some religious system or by my own choice, I come up with a standard for righteousness and how I should live. I define goodness. Now, what that kind of self-righteousness gives to us is an ability to judge other people who don't meet up to our standards. But it also allows us to be God. We've determined righteousness. We've determined what's necessary to enter heaven. Now, the problem with self-righteousness is it doesn't take seriously what righteousness really is. God's the one who defines righteousness. God says that righteousness is perfect holiness, perfect obedience in every area of our lives to him. When we hear that, we go, oh, no, because none of us, because of that disease we inherited from Adam, that selfishness that all of us have at the moment of conception and the moment of birth, because we're bent toward taking care of self, none of us have perfectly obeyed the righteous requirements of God's holy law. And when we're honest with ourselves and realize that's 100% and all of us fall far short of that perfect standard, we too should cry out with those who heard Peter's sermon, what must I do to be saved? My self-righteousness won't work. It's not good enough. And God's perfect standards, perfect holiness, I fall far short. What must I do to be saved? And here's Peter's answer. He said to them in Acts 2, 38 and 39, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now notice the steps that Peter said when you ask the question, what must I do to be saved? First of all, you feel the conviction of sin. Secondly, what can I do to be saved? Thirdly, Peter says, repent. Repent. The best definition of repent I've ever heard is stop it. Stop it. Stop that destructive behavior. Stop your victim mentality. Stop excusing your sin. Stop blaming other people for where you are in life. Stop it. Stop it. Get rid of it. Move in a different direction. Then the next step be baptized. Be baptized. Why is that important? Baptism isn't essential for salvation, but baptism is efficacious for salvation. What is baptism? And we're going to celebrate it next week here on this campus. Over a dozen people who've come to faith in Christ over the last couple of months who've gone through, the, through a baptismal class who want to be baptized. It's basically in a symbolic way representing outwardly what's happened to your heart inwardly, going under the water which says death to self. Repent. No longer am I going to think or act this way. Death to self. Then coming out of the water in resurrection, new life, and new identity before God. I'm a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And I live now in the power of the Holy Spirit, which leads to the next step. After baptism, you receive the forgiveness of your sins. Your heart is washed clean. All of that unrighteousness that kept God's presence from indwelling you, God's perfect Holy Spirit can't indwell unholiness. Now you're washed clean. The literal presence of Jesus comes lives in your heart. And he starts to conform you to who he is. 
Slowly but surely in process, he starts to chip away all those selfish places within you. And he starts changing your heart from a desire to be a superstar to a servant. He starts changing you to be a lover, not a hater. He starts changing you to be a giver, not a getter. You literally from the inside out are conformed to the image of Jesus, made mature in Christ Jesus. Your sins are forever forgiven. Such great news, isn't it? That I could go to God right now and talk about some of the things I've done in my past that I know he found horrific in his sight and know that I've asked for forgiveness, received that forgiveness, and he remembers my sins no more. God's an eternal amnesiac. He forgets my sins as far as the east is from the west. I'm a new creation in Christ. Again, the old has passed away. But there's one more step. After forgiveness, the Holy Spirit literally does come live within you. The gift of the Holy Spirit received by grace, not of self-righteousness, not of works, but a free gift from God because he simply loves us and wants to indwell us and to make us into what Adam failed to be in the Garden of Eden. People who desire to be holy people unto God, a different kind of people in the world. We have a new identity. This promise has made us new people. Now, we live now under grace, not under law. We don't have to try to perform to be accepted by God. Some of you came from performance-based families where your parents wouldn't love you unless you performed rightly before them. And you've now passed that on to your kids. And it's one of the surest ways they'll become depressed because they can never live up to your expectations. But when you live under grace, when you've personally been changed by Jesus Christ, you're a new creation and you pass on that grace to your children who live under the roof that God has given you. Deuteronomy 7.9 is a powerful verse. In families where grace is in place, we have this promise from God. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to what, folks? A. Now, come on now. You can do better than that. I'm pouring my heart into this. You can do better than that. To how many generations? A thousand generations. Isn't that interesting? Under law. The sins of the Father are passed on to the third and fourth generations. But under grace, we can pass on the love of God through Jesus to how many generations? A thousand generations. That's because grace is stronger than sin. You cannot outsin the grace of God. You cannot outsin the grace of God. Grace is more powerful than any law that's ever been written. And when you have it, it changes your life forever. Let me give you the power of grace changing a whole home for generations to come. It comes from my own family. Most of you know how much I love my dad. I miss him terribly. He died two years ago. But dad would tell me stories about his upbringing. He told me how his grandfather was a racist. He thought black people were inferior to whites. And he passed that on to my dad's father, who was a racist. I didn't know my granddad well, but I saw evidence of that. Well, my dad, though, had something different going on in his life. He had a racist dad, but he had a mama who was a Baptist. <laughs> Does it get any better than that? And she was not only a Baptist, she was a praying Baptist. And dad used to talk about how he would 
in the middle of the night awakening, his mom would be downstairs cleaning because it was depression times. It was very difficult. She needed every hour of every day to get everything done. She needed to get done plus working. But he used to hear her downstairs doing her happy dancing. Dad would say, what is that, Mom? And she had her broom. And she was downstairs cleaning, doing her happy dancing. She said, oh, son, I'm just dancing before the Lord. I just love Jesus so much, and sometimes I can't get alone, so I do it in the middle of the night to clean the house and do my happy dancing and sing my songs to the glory of God. And then he said to her, she said to him, and you know, I'm praying for you daily that you will know my Jesus. And I, I joke with some of you, but it's serious. If you're a spiritual skeptic here today and you've got a praying mom, you might as well go ahead and give your life to Jesus. You're toast, guys. You're toast. You know, the praying prayers of a loving mom who gives her life to Jesus is more powerful than all of your runaway motives. And my dad, I think in response largely to his Baptist believing mom, gave his life to Jesus Christ. Came to realize in his early teen years who Jesus was. Well, he eventually accepted a call into ministry. And he was, during his first year of ministry, at a minister's camp. And as God would have it, his roommate was the only African-American pastor there. And dad, as all of us have to do when we've had stuff passed on to us, struggle with God's truth in light of our fleshly nature. And this minister roommate could tell that my dad was a little uncomfortable with an African-American roommate. So one day he said to him, Howard, that was my dad's name, Howard, do you mind if I do something? And my dad said, well, I guess not, what? He said, well, hold out your finger. And he took a little pin and he pricked it, squeezed it, a little red drop of blood came out. He said, what color is your blood? My dad said, red. He said, oh, okay. Then he pricked his own finger, squeezed out a little drop of blood. He said, what color is my blood? My dad said, red. And it hit my dad. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. That Martin Luther King was right, that God looks at the content of one's character, not the color of one's skin. And Grace crashed upon my dad, and he suddenly realized he needed to be a vehicle for the ministry of reconciliation that needed to take place in America. Flash forward to 20 or so years later, we're sitting around the dinner table. Dad was the pastor at First Presbyterian Church, Orlando, Florida, one of the most prestigious and influential churches in that denomination. And we're having dinner, and Dad says, Oh, I want to tell you guys what happened today. What was that, Dad? Well, a young man came to meet with the elders of the church after the service, and he wanted to join. Well, that's cool, Dad. Good. He said, yeah. He was African-American. Mom begins to get a little quizzical. Well, what happened? Well, he loves Jesus, made his public profession of faith, and he said he wanted to join. And I turned to the elders, and I said, I think we should receive this man as a new member of our church here in Orlando. And I said, well, what happened next, Dad? He said, well, Mr. Blankety Blank, who is the most powerful, influential, and wealthy person in the church, who literally gives the church hundreds of thousands of dollars, stood up and said, if he joins, I'm leaving. Then my mom really began to get nervous. What happened then, Howard? He said, oh, I just looked at the elders and said, if he can't join because of the color of his skin, you need to find a new pastor. Then I said, what happened, Dad? They welcomed him into the membership of the church. I said, what happened to Mr. So-and-so? He said, I really don't know, nor do I care. Now, folks, I'm an early teen, and I'm listening to my dad share this story. Do you think 
that had a profound impact upon my life? You betcha. And when my dad came to know Jesus and came to understand truth, the reverse of the curse from his grandfather to his father was broken. And he passed on to me a desire to see the church of Jesus Christ be more multicolored and multi-ethnic. And for those of you who don't like that, you're going to hate heaven. <laughs> you're going to hate heaven. Hate it. Because around the throne of God in worship will be every ethnic tribe and every group of people from all over the world. And I can't help but think in heaven people are going to be of color. How else can we identify the fact there are every ethnic group and every tribe worshiping before God? My dad broke the curse because he chose personally to believe and then pass that on to his family. And now I'm passing on. In fact, Ryan and Bethany were over at the house a couple few weeks ago. You know, Caleb was only a few months old, and so I naturally ask as the granddad that I am, you know, hey, what's next, guys? You know, what's going to happen next? And they went, well, we don't know, and we're praying about it. We're just trying to figure it out. But, uh, you know, um, we're praying right now. Not sure God's leading us this way, but we're just asking the question, at least exploring it. We're wondering if God might not be asking us to adopt an African-American baby. And I said, cool. Cool. And then I looked into heaven and quietly said, I bet you're smiling, Dad. <laughs> I bet you're smiling. Passed on. Grace to the thousandth generation. Some of you ask Marilyn and me from time to time, what have we done in our family? We've produced three good and godly kids. All of them love Jesus. And folks, for preacher's kids, that is most unusual, you know. But I was raised a preacher's kid, so I know what it's like to live in the fishbowl. But here's the deal we do with our three kids. If I can give any of you any parenting advice, here's what it would be. Create an environment, an atmosphere of grace. Create a grace-based home. Now, now, we live in our family to, for excellence. I, I have two Division I scholarship boys. My daughter excelled, so we try to be the best we can. But we don't make performance our identity. We live by this adage you do your best, give God the rest. We live by the truth. Do your best, strive for excellence, but live by grace. And guys on staff here will tell you that's the environment I've created here. Last night, Zach forgot to call for the offering. Folks, you never forget to call for the offering. In a tree. <laughs> and, and afterwards, he came to me and said, I'm just so sorry, and I appreciated his heart. I said, Zach, wait, wait a minute. You're forgetting the offering is not going to be what ushers Jesus to come back again, Okay. We, we, we live to be our best. We, we live to strive for excellence in every way. But when we don't, when we fail, and we all fail, we live by grace. Marilyn taught that to our kids. They lived by it. If you can create a home where grace is in place, it's the environment that natural plants need to prosper. It's how God intended the home to operate. In fact, one quick story. Marilyn invented a song she sang to our kids from their earliest days onward. It went like this. I love you when you're happy. I love you when you're sad. I love you when you're feeling good or when you're feeling bad. I love you, I love you, I really, really love you. No matter what you say or do, I really, really love you. I really, really love you. 
sang it over and over and over again. Kind of catchy though, isn't it, huh? And if you publish it, 10% to the local church, okay? All right. One day when Bethany was around eight years of age, she was in the kitchen fixing some food. Her hands were kind of buttery, and she was carrying this huge glass of milk over to the table, setting the table, and it squeezed out of her hands, went skyward, and you could just see what was going to happen. It went on the floor, crashed into a thousand pieces, milk everywhere. She looks at her mom, eyes wide, tears forming, just thinking, I'm going to get it now. And Marilyn goes, Bethany, I love you when you're happy. <laughs> I love you when you're sad. One time, Marilyn dropped a glass of uh, water in the kitchen, and Bethany started singing it to her. <laughs> Shows you how it all caught on. But the, the, the point being, look, I drew lines of discipline in my home. I mean, I told the kids two rules. If you ever disrespect me or mom, or if you ever disrespect God, expect punishments. Now, there were clear lines and boundaries. We didn't have greasy grace in our home. But what drove every interaction with our kids was unconditional. If I could give you one tip, as a parent, that'd be it. Kids are like flowers placed in the right environment of grace, like God is. God is grace. They'll grow to be healthy, Christ-loving adults who will pass on to their children, to the thousandth generation, the blessings of grace, not curses. I want to end this message today by challenging you to understand who you are in Christ, to understand your identity, that the curse has passed away and you are new creations in Christ. Our counseling department here at Forest Hill has told me that if you guys could get this, our counseling load would practically go away because most of your problems are because of junk passed on to you, identity issues, you believing lies about yourself and what the devil does is, I don't know how he does it, he's got access to our minds and he speaks that lack of identity to us and he most often does it in our own voices with a southern accent. And if I can get you to start thinking rightly about who you are, your life will be forever changed. So let me ask if you'd please stand. And I have some I am statements that I want you to say with me. And I don't want you to kind of go, I am. Folks, I want you to pour your heart into it. Because if you are in Christ, if you're a believer in Christ today, this is who you are. And it comes from the great I am. Moses asked God when he called him to free the people from Egypt, well, whom should I tell Pharaoh is calling me? And he said, here's my name. I am who I am. That's God's name. When you pray this afternoon or tomorrow morning, Begin your prayer with, good morning, I am. And notice that God is, I am who I am, not I was who I was. Or I will be who I will be. Whatever your need is, he's your provision. I am blank, whatever you need. So if that's who God is, the great I am, about whom we sang and will sing in just a moment, here's who you are. Say it with me. I am You can do better than that. I am created for a purpose. Boy, God's really thrilled. Now, come on. I'll say the I am. You say the last part, okay? I am created for a purpose. I am the word there in the Greek is nike for conquer. What does that sound like? Nike. And Paul says we are hooper nikes. Hooper, hyper. We're hyper conquerors in Christ. Not Casper Milk Toast just trying to get by every day. Not victims, but victors. So one more time on that one. I am 
More than a conqueror. Good. I am defined by and not my family history. Did you get that? Good. I am defined by what God thinks of me and not good. I am characterized by good. I am you are. Nobody in the world like you. Wow. I am isn't that amazing? Among all the people in the world, God wanted you on his team. He wanted you on his team. Wow. I am the hung on his trophy case. You, so proud of you. Well done, my daughter. Well done, my son, in whom I'm well pleased. My masterpiece. And finally, I am. I am. I am.